Listeners from Chicago, Illinois, please hang out after the end of the show for two quick announcements. Welcome to Data Skeptic. Our mini episodes are gentle introductions to concepts related to artificial intelligence. These short discussions are meant to serve as a primer for the topic. Learn more by reading our show notes at dataskeptic.com. Today's interview is with Jerry Schwartz from the Independent Investigation Group, or IIG. The IIG tests claims of the paranormal. Anyone who believes they can defy the laws of science can submit an application to their challenge. What's interesting to me about the IIG is how they leverage statistics and devise good experimental design in an effort to test paranormal claims. After all, almost no paranormal claim comes with a description of the mechanism by which it works. If we're to take anyone seriously, we have to compare what they can do to how often someone could do the same thing purely by chance. It's not always obvious how to look at things like this statistically, and Jerry and I will get into that. But the other piece I want you to think about, especially for people who come to Data Skeptic for more data than skeptic, is how do we convince people that machine learning systems work in an era when algorithms are increasingly described as black boxes? How do you know they do what their creators say they do? Yes, there's excellent work in model interpretability. We first covered this topic when I first did an interview on Lime, and interpretability remains an important topic in our community. But it seems to me, as work in artificial intelligence progresses, we have to give up on the idea that we'll have perfectly interpretable models. Why did you buy the most recent house you bought, or why did you rent your most recent apartment? You know, maybe you have a quick answer like, oh, it was the right price, or it was walking distance from something important to you. Yes, much of that decision can probably be quantified, but some of it comes down to your preference, to your gut instinct. What's the interpretability there? An excellent measure of if something behaves as described is through an empirical test, a validation. So maybe data scientists have a few things to learn about how we construct effective demonstrations of highly advanced technology. Gary Schwartz, and I am the chair of the Independent Investigation Group branch in Northern California. Primarily, we're a skeptics group that administers a $100,000 prize for anybody who can demonstrate paranormal powers. What qualifies as a paranormal power? Well, that's a good question. The answer is we know it when we see it. (laughs) Basically, it's anything that the applicant can do that would be outside the normal processes of natural science. We insist that the power be demonstrated in a test in our presence that we have agreed is a valid test of their claim. What are some of the typical types of claims that reach you guys, both those that you might immediately kind of have to reject for because they're too kooky, and what are the ones that get a little further in the process? The typical claim is that somebody can uh, telekinesis, they can make something move, or ESP, they can read other people's thoughts. We do get a fair number of claims that seem, I have to be very careful how I say this, that seemed to be the product of some kind of psychological ideation not connected to reality. One of our members is is a psychologist who is has a lot of experience dealing with abnormal psychology. He frequently looks at the claim and says, I've seen that claim before. 
he doesn't say that it's a result of some psychological problem because that would be against psychological ethics, but uh, it's pretty clear that's what he means. That makes sense. Yeah, so I guess we could put the different applicants into a couple of buckets. There's people that uh, you know, maybe have a psychological issue and, and they really need treatment of some kind, so it's good to hear there's someone on staff to route that a bit. There could also be people who I think are con artists. They're trying to get to the $100,000 and they think they were able to fool you. There's also people who, uh, I'm going to assume they're mistaken, just in, in the sense that the IAG has yet to find any paranormal results. Maybe they will one day. But to date, no one has presented a paranormal claim and backed it up. So at least many of those people were mistaken. That could be our third category. And perhaps there's even another category of uh, people that the claim is dangerous in some way. Like they would say, if I hurt myself, then my local sports team will win. And you might not want to take that on. Does that kind of cover the four general categories? Uh, yes. The largest category, I believe, is people who are just mistaken. We have a policy of not doing any medical tests. Uh, we had a recent applicant who claimed he could recognize cancer before medicine could recognize it. We've also had proposals for powers involved with injuring themselves. The vast majority of applicants seem to be self-deluded. Surprisingly, as far as we know, in the 10 or 15 years that IIG has been in existence, nobody's actually tried to scam us. Interesting. So it's all g people who genuinely believe they have an ability then coming to you to present. As far as we can tell, yes. What is the first step for someone that believes they have a paranormal power? How do they submit for the prize? There is an online form they can fill out at iigwest.org. If you go to that website and you click on the right button, it'll take you to the form you can fill out. About how often do you guys see claims coming in? Probably about once a week. Oh, really? I, wow. I have an exact uh, statistic on that, but that seems to be, that's my impression. We are only one branch. There is a person who takes incoming applications and distributes it to a list of people who are willing to deal with them. When you get an application, what are some of the early stage steps between someone who raises their hand and says, you know, I have a paranormal power, and then getting them along the path towards one of these formal tests that you guys conduct? That application is assigned to some member who then initiates an email exchange uh, in which they uh, refine a way to do the testing. So let's get into that. What does a test consist of? Well, that depends a lot of, uh, on the claim, obviously. Mm -hmm. A typical claim, say ESP, you have two people. One is the sender and the other is the receiver. One's in one room and the other's in another. And the sender is shown uh, something random, typically a card out of a regular deck. The receiver then has to say what they think the sender is seeing. Uh, and that has to be repeated a sufficient number of times so that the probability of being correct by chance is below our normal threshold, which is 1 in 5,000. And how do you arrive at 1 in 5,000? A lot of the statistical testing that people are taught in school calls for a p-value of 0 0.05, which is about 1 in 20 chance that it might happen just by luck alone. 
it's a long history of how we ended up at one in 5,000. But the reason we don't go with one in 20 is there's a significant amount of money involved. Mm-hmm. We don't want to treat that lightly. Further, the uh, one in 20, as uh, I'm sure you are aware, is fairly controversial in the, uh, in the scientific community. So let's maybe get into the specific case that you and I initially started discussing. Could you describe uh, that applicant from maybe start to test phase? How did they first submit? What was their exact claim? Their claim was they could look at a picture of a person and tell us whether that person was alive or dead. They had certain requirements on the picture, had to be basically a face shot. The person couldn't have a beard, things like that. Other than that, they would tell us if the person was alive or dead. We finally did get to a test after a lot of time. I think it was like two years. And the reason it took us that time was not anything they were doing. We had a hard time figuring out how we should approach acquiring pictures of live and dead people. Then there was some time spent on the logistics of the test because they were in Eastern Europe and could not come to California. So this supposed ability to look at a photo and know if the person was alive or dead, on the surface, we could say statistically, oh, that's a binary event, right? They either are or they're not. So his accuracy ought to be no worse than 50%. That would just be the flipping of a coin. But I'm a little hesitant to to say that I think that's the case, because I think I could do a little bit better than chance. I mean, if you show me a photo of Abraham Lincoln, I know the answer. If you show me a photo of someone in traditional garb of, you know, the 18th century or something like that, I get and it's in sepia tones, I get a few hints as well. How did you guys look at this in terms of what standard of evidence there should be? We took a couple of points of view on this. One, we worried a lot about there being detectable differences in the pictures. And so we undertook a process of what we call normalization. We took color pictures and made them black and white. We added measurable amount of noise and generally tried to make the pictures as non-revealing of anything except the faces as possible. We did the statistics based on the idea that getting each picture right was a 50-50 chance. Then we tightened the number of trials and the number needed to succeed a bit so that it was even harder than one in 5,000. Our ultimate backup here, which is true for all the tests that we perform, is that these are not, quote, tests. They are preliminary demonstrations which we emphasize, if anybody passes a preliminary demonstration, which nobody has, we will do a final test in which we have tightened the requirements. Primarily, that means we'll do more trials. We don't really have any experience with this because, as I said, nobody's ever passed a preliminary demonstration, but we would think very hard about any flaws and whether the person possibly could have cheated. Yeah, the cheating is kind of the interesting angle on this. 
Uh, as we've been talking, I've been thinking through ways in which, for example, you know, you had to acquire photos from somewhere. Obituaries are one possible source. And although there's a lot of newspapers in the world, it wouldn't be impossible for someone to develop, let's say, some software that crawled all the newspapers, pulled back all the obituaries, and then they worked on memorizing those photos just on the off chance you used some of those. Was that a worry at all? It was a slight worry, but it didn't seem it was a large enough worry to stop the uh, percentage. I want to thank our sponsor, Brilliant.org. Brilliant is one of the best examples of edutainment I've found. In addition to using it for learning, I use Brilliant to really just keep myself sharp. They've got courses spanning multiple topics like computer science fundamentals, physics of the everyday, and group theory. It's a large collection of courses as well as practice content. There's always something to do as you learn and test yourself. And the quizzes give you this great feedback, like telling you what percentage of people got a certain question right after you answer. I like taking the courses on my desktop, but with the mobile version, Brilliant really fills in the little moments of downtime in my busy schedule. Check it out for yourself at brilliant.org slash dataskeptic. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash dataskeptic. Originally, we had intended that none of the pictures that we were going to use would have been on the web at all. We couldn't get enough dead people without going to obituary sites. Mm -hmm. We decided it was worth the risk that he had such a super memory. Right, right. Even then, that would only get him, well, I never did the computation, but it wouldn't have given him more than a 50-50 chance of getting things right, I don't believe. I'm not sure I follow, because let's just hypothetically say he found all of the sources you guys found and had a perfect memory. Seems that he could have then passed the test. He would have been able to recognize all of the dead people. I guess then if he took the approach of, well, if the person isn't in somebody I've seen, then it must be, they must be living. I guess that would have allowed him to pass. That it just seemed to us to be safe enough, given that this is only the preliminary and we'd have more control on the other end on an actual test that we didn't have to worry about this. Or rather, we did worry about it, but that it was not a large enough worry for us to refuse to do the test. I guess at some level, if they acquired all those photos, I mean, I know something about population, that'd be quite a few And if they successfully memorized all of them, well, that's almost a paranormal power in and of itself. Almost. Yeah. (laughs) Did you guys worry about advancements in photo technology? Uh, The newer a photo is, the more likely the person's still alive. And we're living in a time where it seems every couple of years you can tell if a photo was made on new technology or old. Uh, Yes, we thought about that a lot, which is why, as I say, we went to Photoshop and added noise and uh, normalized the color, well, and made made all of them black and white. I'm not an expert in photography or recent innovations, but we felt that that probably was sufficient to hide the fact of how old the picture was. No beards, huh? Is it like a Samson kind of a thing? What's going on there? I don't know. He never explained it. We generally have a policy of not delving into why they have specified detailed criteria. It's their claim. We accept their claim is what we're going to test. Applicants often have some peculiar or things that strike us as peculiar limitations on their powers. 
We just accept that. We don't push them to explain it. Something that's very interesting to me about any sort of test, be it one conducted by you know a pharmaceutical researcher in a laboratory or one conducted by the IIG, is we can measure the the claim or the hypothesis in an empirical fashion, but it's much preferable if we know something about the mechanism. Do your applicants, do they give you any sense about the means by which they've acquired this alleged power or how it works for them? Usually not. We, we t- ask them for that kind of information and they can't really tell us. When they fail, as I say, they all have, uh, we say, well, why do you think you failed? And the answer almost inevitably is they don't know. They thought their power was working and it just didn't work. A lot of applicants drop out. I'd say probably it's no more than one in 15 or 20 applicants that actually continue all the way to a test. So in the e-commerce world, we would call that the conversion funnel. Do you know much about which step it is at which people fall off? The most common one is is in the preliminary discussion of how they can be tested. We encourage them to test themselves. When we've sort of agreed on what the test will be, we really recommend strongly that they get a friend or two, however many it takes, and do a test on themselves and see if they can really do it. They almost never do. It seems like that would be an easy step before going through the application process. I wonder why that doesn't happen. Before they go through the application process, mostly they don't understand what a carefully controlled test would be. By the time that we agree on a protocol, of course, they know what, how we're going to conduct the test. And even so, they still don't do a home test, as it were, even when it's a simple thing for them to do. So tell me a little bit about what it was like on the day of the test. You know, how did you give them the photos? Uh, how did they provide the responses? Was there a time limit? What are some of those criteria? This was all negotiated in advance. The photos were printed on, I think, eight and a half by 11. They were just handed to him. He was supposed to write on the back of each one what he thought about that photo after two hours or earlier if he decided he was done we would check what he wrote on the back of each photo against what the truth was. We agreed to split the test in half, 10 pictures in the second half, 10 pictures. He failed the first 10 sufficiently so he could not possibly have passed in the overall 20. I forget the exact number. I think he got four right in the first 10 which is about expectation. There were a bunch of us sitting around in a room watching the test on TV, and just as a lark, the person who had prepared the pictures handed them out to us, and my God, one of us got nine out of ten. Oh, we were testing the wrong person. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Well, we might chalk that up to the classic uh, failure to control for multiple comparisons there, perhaps, but who knows? I think so. Um, (laughs) I personally got two right, but then I took the scientific approach of using a coin to flip to decide. Seems like an optimal strategy to me. It's as good as any. In fact, we had some discussion about how we decided which uh, pictures to give him. There was some discussion in the group about, well, we're going to have 20, let's make 10 
currently living and Ken currently dead, that very quickly we realized that was not a good approach because it improves his chances, not a lot, but a little. And the easiest way to see that is to imagine he's been right on everyone up to the last one, and he knows that there are 10 and 10, then he knows the last one. And so he gets a slight edge there. So when I look at some problems like this, I have a tendency to forget about a good heuristic called Occam's razor and uh, maybe overthink the modeling of this. As you pointed out, if he knew the number, process of elimination could give him some advantage. And even those notions like, you know, the age of the photo, there's some information content in that photo. Even in an extreme case, maybe he has the ability to recognize some rare disease that the average person can't see. And he sees that in the photo and says, aha, that person only had three months to live. They're probably one of the dead people. It didn't seem like any of that overcomplication was necessary. How often does it come up in the tests, or does it all pretty much break down to the binomial distribution? We did consider those issues you just raised. We decided that we could ignore them. It almost always comes down to the binomial. So how much do you guys have to worry about uh, Mission Impossible type stuff, that someone has a wire or an earpiece or some sort of high-tech gadget that's giving them information from the outside. Is that ever a concern? It is always a concern. Depending on the test, there are various ways of controlling for it. The basic control is they aren't allowed any electronics. That is checked. Now, I suppose somebody could put some electronics of some kind under their skin or be undetectable. The LA group has an ex-policeman who uh, brings a wand that they use to check that there are no electronics on the person. As far as we can tell, nobody has ever attempted to cheat. Why do you suppose people end up with these beliefs? Why do people believe weird things? Well, that's a big question. It's kind of above my pay grade. (laughs) People believe all kinds of weird things all the time. I don't want to be political here, but we can say that this seems to be common in politics. There's no reason that paranormal beliefs should be exempted from that kind of mistaken impression. You know, I'll confess as a small child, I once wondered, do I have the ability to predict a coin toss? And I sat down one day and flipped a coin 10 times, and I think I probably got about half right and was smart enough to give up. But, you know, uh, the coin toss is random. In another universe, there's a Kyle Polich who, in a coincidence, got 10 heads in a row. Do you think that there's some germinating root of, of just chance that inspires people and that starts them off on kind of a path of this belief? Or is it more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated. I think there's a large cultural component because this kind of belief in the paranormal is very widespread. Mm-hmm. And so they come to that from it being all around them that there are people believing this kind of thing when they're growing up. They've got the tooth fairy when they're a little older. They have all kinds of medical quackery that people believe. It is not the social norm to disregard paranormal claims. Well, Jerry, to wrap up, I was hoping I could pick your brain on the idea of the Turing test. I presume you're familiar with it, right? Yes. I actually worked in a Department of Artificial Intelligence in the 80s. My own take on it is that the original Turing test, as stated, is not very good in terms of the quality that the intelligence has to be. 
What we see these days in artificial intelligence indicates that rather superficial analysis can generate conversation. I'm a firm believer that there's almost no limit to how intelligent computers can be, but the Turing test is not a good way to determine the current state of our technology in that regard. Well, to my reading, Turing was really interested in the question, can a machine think? And his proposal was that this imitation game was uh, the equivalent question, that uh, asking can a machine think gets us a bit too philosophical, maybe, and saying can a machine be indistinguishable in conversation from a person would be a, a good proxy for the same question. Where do you see the flaws more specifically? No, actually, I think that's a good analysis. It has turned out that conversation is easier than Turing thought. The Turing test itself, as Turing originally designed it, is an interesting thing to do, like testing paranormal claims is an interesting thing to do. Mm -hmm. As a criteria for where we sit in having developed intelligence in computers, I'm not convinced that it's actually a good one. Now, I take a slightly more rigid position on the question of computers thinking. We are computers. We're thinking. I agree. When I was in the Department of Artificial Intelligence a few years ago, we were using what's now known as uh, good old-fashioned AI. And now we have neural networks. Next year, there may be some new advance. But it's pretty clear that there's no fundamental philosophical or scientific reason why we ever will stop that advance. It just seems inevitable to me that computers are going to be getting smarter and smarter and smarter until there's no uh, limit. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And if there was, it's sort of a burden of proof at this point for someone to claim what that limit is, I think. Yeah, there are, of course, philosophers who think there are, are, are limits, but they can never actually specify, as far as I know, where that limit is. Searle is the Chinese room and all that kind of thing. He's got some deep, deep antipathy to computers, I think. Yeah. Personally, I don't think there is any limit. Do you think the IIG will ever take an interest in a claim along the lines of a Turing test? Someone submitting uh, a a machine that claims to think or do something else that would essentially be a, a paranormal claim? A machine that thinks is not a paranormal claim. Whoever designed the machine would uh, know how it works and wouldn't be paranormal. The more interesting question to me is, if we ever encounter alien life, how will we decide whether that life is intelligent or not? If they get here in a spacecraft, then we probably assume they are, but they might not have designed the spacecraft, so we have to really get to them. We can't expect them to speak English. Could we design a test for whether they are intelligent? I am uh, uncertain about the answer to that one. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, just given how unbounded we have to let our imaginations run and what life might look like. Uh, There are a lot of science fiction movies that explore that. Yeah. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab. All right, Chicago, I'm headed home. Tuesday, May 15th, downtown, 6 p.m. There's going to be a data skeptic meetup at the Mendoza College of Business. It's right there on Michigan Avenue. It's a free event, but it's a ticketed event. So go to our show notes to get your ticket. Once again, Tuesday at 6 p.m., 224 South Michigan.
that following Saturday, May 19th, I'll be giving a talk at the Chicago AI and Data Science Conference 2018. Tickets for that at ideassn.org. Link available in the show notes. I hope to have a chance to meet some of you there.